and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus Lad, and today I'm covering the last issue of Legion of Superheroes Volume 4 that I intend to cover, at least for the time being. Uh, I've said before, I think at this point on several occasions, but I've said before that I do intend to go... Uh, I intend to go as far into Legion of Superheroes Volume 4 as issue number 24, right? So, being as I'm getting, I would say, most of the way through Legion number 12, depending on how you look at it, I'm halfway through my five years later coverage here. Then again, though, there is, there is an annual to deal with, and who knows what the future may bring. But anyway, point is, uh, what I at least intend to cover of Legion of Superheroes, which is to say number numbers 1 through 24, and also an annual as well. This kind of, sort of, in a way, maybe is the halfway point-ish. So, anyway, so that's that stuff. So... I'm, you know what? I just, I, I'm so excited to talk about this issue. I've actually, originally I was thinking about going through a little bit of uh, preliminary bullshit at the beginning of this episode, but you know what? I think I'm just going to go ahead and dive headfirst into Legion of Superheroes, Volume 4, Number 12. Story is entitled, Rebirth. Story synopsis is as follows. On Wynoff, Brainy works desperately to save Celeste Rockfish from the injuries inflicted upon her by Roxas, knowing that it's useless and he can't do a damn thing to save her. Suddenly, the semi-sentient green energy from the previous issues arrives on Wynoth and miraculously heals Celeste of all her injuries. Elsewhere, Bryn Londo has briefly emerged from his furball per, uh, persona. Lost in depression, he wanders through the woods. And he's naked, which means he probably won't stand out too much on Wynoff. So, there's that. Also on Wynoff, Kaz defiantly declares that the Legion is back. Therefore, he's divided the Legionnaires into two separate teams. One team is going to guard the Rand's Lightning Plantation, while the, uh, the other team pursues Roxas, who's gone into hiding. The strike team eventually corner and then capture Roxas, who, who, who gives up EarthGov as his employer. Finally, Cam presents Cause with a very special gift, new Legion uniforms. Now, technically, there's more to this issue than just that, but this is the end of the basic story that was introduced in the first issue of the series, and so for that reason, I'll say, to be continued. So, what did I think? Well, starting with the cover, this is a little bit of a return to form here. For those who are coming in late, I've had, I can't say criticisms of recent Legion of Superheroes covers, but I've had uh, reservations, one might say, about some of the recent Legion of Superheroes covers that, that we've been given. It, there's, there's really nothing bad about them, you know, not in any kind of objective sense. There's nothing really wrong with them. It's just that at the same time, they, they just don't have the same kind of 
visual power to them that Legion number one had, or Legion number four had, so on and so forth. Uh, Legion number nine, there's another one. It's just, the, the covers we've gotten lately are just not on the same order as those really great covers. And honestly, for that matter, neither is this, except in a kind of way it is. It's, I, I guess your actual mileage may vary. Basically though, this cover, it, it, it's basically the, the side, or I guess the outer hull, or part of the outer hull, fucking whatever, of the ship that uh, Ayla Rands was ogling in the last issue. It's the exterior of that with the Legion symbol painted basically dead center right in the cover. And I kind of like this because there's some sort of interesting symbolism here. Not speaking specifically of the Legion symbol, although I guess there's that too, but the symbolism of this battered, dilapidated ship, uh, it's definitely showing its age. You know, the wear and the tear. Uh, it's, it, it's been through a lot, and man, it sure looks like it. You could kind of regard that as kind of like a representation of the galaxy at large, you know, the UP and goings-on with it. And then, like I say, smack in the middle of the cover, this is the, the uh, Legion symbol. And it too is similarly pockmarked and beat up and it, it's got scars and stuff on it. But you know what? It's still there. And I kind of like that it, it symbolizes, number one, I guess the turmoil of the galaxy over and against uh, the permanence of the Legion and how no matter how bad things get in the galaxy or on the ship, the Legion or its symbol on the ship is still there. And I just sort of like that. And this is not to speak of the uh, silhouettes of the different characters, the shadows that are being cast on, on this spaceship. All in all, this is a good cover. It's definitely an improvement over some of the covers that we've gotten lately. It's not, at least in my estimation, it's not really competitive with the best covers that we've gotten so far, but I'm still prepared to say it's a very good cover. Now, getting into the issue at hand, page one, this is kind of an eye-opening little character moment for Brainy, and this is one of the things that I kind of like about team books. Now, for a long time there, I kind of struggled with the concept of a team book. It's not that I didn't like them, but I've always been kind of a fan of having sort of laser-like focus on, on a given character and following his journey, his progression, changes, and uh, character development, and all that good stuff. And by definition, you typically don't really get that in a team book. You know, there's supposed to be an ensemble piece, and God knows, Legion of Superheroes is definitely an ensemble piece. And so, so you've got that to work with, right? Having said that, though, the fact that you're reading a team book doesn't automatically eliminate the possibility of solid character development. And we've got a fair amount in this issue. One good example, in fact, is right here on page one. It's, it's basically uh, Brainiac, and he's kind of musing over how he's figured out the meaning to life, or at least how he sees the meaning of life and all of that. So why is it then he, a 12th level intellect, why is it that he is struggling so much with death 
And so, actually, you know what? Instead of trying to badly summarize uh, the GIF's words, I'm actually just gonna gonna read the inner the interior monologue here. Brainy thinks to himself, in a way, life makes perfect sense. We open our hearts to the muses. We follow our souls, find our own paths. We respect the paths of others. We celebrate their diversity. It's all so simple. Life is good. Life works. Yes, sir, Mr. Docs, you've got life all figured out. So how come you don't have a clue about death? Why does Celeste Rockfish have to die? Why did Joe have to die? How does any of this fit your neat little equation of life? How can you apply a 12th level intelligence for all these years and still be so utterly incapable of dealing with death? And that's the end of the uh, interior monologue. And at the very moment that he thinks to himself, why did Joe have to die? This is page one, panel six. There's a, a pretty extreme close-up of, of Brainy's face and the, the pain, the remorse, the grief he feels in at least believing that Joe is dead. It's all so real. And honestly, the, for a long time, I'm not saying that this is right, that this is fair, or that this is accurate, but for the longest time, when I was reading Legion comics, the sense that I always had of uh, the Kaluans is that they're basically they're basically a race of Vulcan geniuses, <clears throat> and so they tend. I don't know how true this ever was specifically of Spock, but at least the Vulcans as a race they tend to suppress their emotions. And it's clear if you watch, I would say, especially a lot of the original series episodes, it's pretty clear that Spock, he feels emotions. He feels them very deeply. He simply does not express them. And he's not necessarily sensitive to them either. His own emotions are for that, God knows, the, the emotions of others. And again, not saying it's fair or that it's right or whatever, I'm just saying that I'd kind of projected a lot of Vulcan ideas and philosophies and values onto the Kaluans in, I would say, early in my Legion experience. And you get to pages like this, though, once in a while, where where Brainy is, he, he's reflecting on on death, he's... Uh, despairing over his inability to save Celeste. He's mourning the loss of Joe, or again, the perceived loss of Joe, because Joe obviously isn't actually dead, but anyway. And so the broad spectrum of emotions that you know he's feeling, it's just kind of a slap in the face for people like me who misunderstood what the Kaluans are all about. And... Yes, they do value intelligence. In fact, you might say that's probably their most prized characteristic. And considering how intelligent they are, it's not hard to understand why they value that so much. And because of that, you tend to think that they've lost balance with their emotions. And you get to this, you get to pages like this one where uh, 
it's pretty clear that no, that is not true, you know? Anyway, so getting into page two, we finally catch up with with uh, Cause and Cam, and they're they're basically going back and forth with each other. And one of the things that just kind of stood out to me with this page, this is a uh, uh, panel six. Basically, Cause announces that he's sent out a a he, he's basically split the Legion into two teams. He says basically that most of the Legionnaires are going to stay behind and protect the plantation. But the other ones, they are going out on assignment. And cause, or not cause, Cam is actually really taken aback by that. He says, bloody Nass, you sent them on a mission and they all went? And one of the things that I like about this is that up to this point, the Legion the Legionnaires had been having kind of a reunion with each other, but I think it would be inaccurate in the extreme to say that the, the team was officially back together before the Roxas attack. I don't think it's accurate to say that the team had officially, in name as well as fact, reunited, they uh, become active again, and they were back in business. I don't think you can say that, but following uh, the Roxas attack there on Wynoth, Cause makes the executive decision that, no, we are back now, this is real, this is serious, and we're going to find the guy that attacked us, and we're, we're going for it. And number one, that says a lot about his, why it is that he's, no matter who may have, you know, who may be the, the titular leader of the team, Cause is the real leader of the team. He's the heart and soul of the team. And you get to pages like this, or issues like this, really, that go a long way towards explaining why that is. So he's able to, to, to comfort uh, Cam, because Pam, or Cam, uh, Cam is basically, he's kind of having a little bit of despair of his own. He says, the plain truth is we were so pumped up about staring down Mordrew that we just lost our heads. We forgot that Legionnaires never stop being targets. And he even goes on to say, now we'll never get this damn group together. And ultimately, you know, everything that I just said about Cause sending out uh, the, the uh, team to, to track Roxas down, you know, that stuff ensues. Uh, Cam expresses amazement at, at that. And then uh, panel nine, uh, panel nine, uh, uh, Cause says, we're back, Cam. The Legion is back. And it just, it says so much about, again, Cause as the true leader of this team, you know, that maybe if, if the Dominators were determined to make sure that the, that the Legion can't ever reform, instead of starting off their assassinations with Block, they really should have started off their assassinations with with cause. I don't know that it would have been possible for anybody to get the Legion back together if Roxas had taken uh, cause out, you know? Now, ship sailed on that. The, the uh, team is back together. And honestly, at this point, I don't think that killing cause would be enough to, to break the team up. But killing cause would have been enough, in my opinion, to prevent the team from reforming in the first place. So ship sailed on that. 
Uh, anyway, so moving right along, this is getting into page three. We get a tiny little bit of uh, Celeste. I don't want to say origin, but maybe a little bit of her history, specifically that she's cousins with Leland, Leland Macaulay. And I guess what I like about that is it tends to emphasize the fact that Celeste has a connection with the Legion that goes far beyond her circumstantial pairing with them right now actually goes deeper back into her history than that. And another kind of interesting little bit of business here is the fact that this is a page three, panel seven. She sees, or at least she's had some kind of contact with a green, green lantern ring. And I think that goes a long way towards explaining not only the, the green blob of energy that we've been seeing through issues leading up to this point, but specifically that same green blob of energy entering her room and ultimately going on to heal her. Because as I've said before, splash pages have not been a defining element of Legion of Superheroes Volume 4 up to this point, but we get a glorious splash page here on page 6. It's it's Celeste. She's sitting up in bed. All of her injuries are gone. Before page six, her face had been all fucked up from where uh, Roxas had, had punched her, beat her around, slammed her face into walls and stuff. And now all the bruises, the, the broken nose, uh, the, the cuts, scrapes, the blood, the injuries, that stuff is all gone. And so it solves the immediate problem of how Brainy is going to save her life. But it also sets up a new mystery of what is the, I mean, obviously this energy that's been floating around these past few issues, this energy has some kind of relation to the, to the green lanterns and very possibly to the, the self same green lantern ring that Celeste was uh, exposed to earlier in life. But now it kind of raises the question of what's the deal? What's going on with this? Why why is there a connection between Celeste and this ring? What is that connection? Is she a Green Lantern herself? The fuck's going on? So I, this is one of the things that I just enjoy about five years later in general, that every time some plot point is resolved, it typically results in the creation of a new plot point to, to keep the story going. I just really respect that about the GIF that he's able to to just wring so much dramatic potential out of all of these stories. Now, there is a minor criticism going on here that this is this infirmary is obviously being managed by Brainy. And so when the green light comes flooding in, it's a little bit harder to get the full dramatic weight of that because let's face it, Green Lantern en energy is duh, it's it's green. And Kaluans are a green-skinned race. And so, anyway, it's not a big deal, but I just, I did think that was kind of funny. So, and again, this is just a gorgeous uh, sp uh, splash that we see on page six here. This is just really well done, very effective, and all the more powerful, I would say, because of how rare splashes are in this series up to this point. We're getting into a just a general era in comics where... A lot of people tend to agree splashes were overused. Some might even say outright abused. And this plays for me in as much as the GIF really did hold back 
on splashes in volume four. And so when he uses them, it's always to very powerful and very dramatic effect. So anyway, <sighs> moving right along though, uh, we, we catch up with the, the legionnaires that are closing in on Roxas and Roxas is basically having, uh, I don't know, monologue, dialogue, trilogue, whatever log captain's log with all of his different altars that are, that are speaking. And he's got a pretty good sense of the fact that the legionnaires are closing in and probably escape is, well, it's hard to know for sure what, if any, his reasoning is right now. And then sure enough, the legion, the legion, uh, legionnaires do close in. This is on page 11. And so Roxas pulls out this really evil looking giant capsule looking thing, like a giant red pill from the matrix, pulls that out. And you get the idea, at least at first, that this is a this is a bomb. And no, you get it because there's this gigantic flash of light. And so you think, OK, well, everyone in there is kind of sort of fucked. And then, nope, come to find out that it looks like I, I guess this is like a flash grenade or something like that. Because Roxas says, thank you. Thank you. But alas, my friends, that lovely grand finale you clamor for. It can never be. For dear friends, if I were to incinerate myself, why, who would be left to graciously accept your lovely plaudits? No, my sweet friends, let me instead bid you all a fond adieu. And then he just passes out. And one of the things I haven't really mentioned here is, guys, Roxas is fucked up. And I'm not just talking mentally. I mean, he's just in really bad shape. He has this kind of two-face sort of thing going on. The left side of his face is just completely fucked up. And he's got this giant circular blob of blood on his forehead. And it just kind of raises the question. Is that circular blob of blood on his forehead, is that an injury that he sustained? Or is that blob of blood... Yeah a conscious or maybe a subconscious reference to the dominators and he does somewhat implicate the the dominators on page 10 when he pulls out the giant explosive red pill flash grenade looking thing and you know he because he mentions them by name well they left me something else and so here again there is circumstantial evidence that ties Roxas to the Dominators, and now three Legionnaires have heard it. This is more significant than it might seem, because unwittingly, Roxas implicated uh, the Dominators in sending Roxas himself after the Legion to take him out, whenever he was beating the shit out of Celeste. Now, that is a secret Celeste may very well have taken to her grave, except for the fact that the green semi-sentient blob of energy has just restored Celeste to full health. And presumably she's still in her right mind. So here again, this is somebody else to whom Roxas has implicated the Dominators in uh, the murder of all of these, or attempted murder of all these Legionnaires. What do you want to bet that something's going to happen with this sooner rather than later? So anyways... 
We get into, this is kind of an interesting little bit of business though, on page 12, right after Roxas collapses, uh, Jan says, wow, Joe must have really pounded him. Ayla answers, you know, if we don't do something, he's gonna die right here. And Vi says, after what he did to Block and Joe, I really don't think I give a damn. And Ayla kind of agrees with that. She says, it is better than he deserves. And Jan basically settles the argument right here, right now. He says, no, this isn't about him or his atrocities or even justice. It's about us and how much of us would die in this room with him. And that to me is kind of the salient issue that's been running through all of these five years later issues that we've been working our way through up to this point. One of the reasons, just a kind of tangent for a minute, but don't worry, I do plan to make sense of this. One of the reasons that I've kind of associated uh, synthwave music with all of these Legion episodes that I've done is because synthwave is kind of like this 80s nostalgia, I don't even know, like nostalgia porn, really, of a musical genre. It's basically about how awesome the 80s were. And there's also this kind of retro futurist thing that goes in with that, specifically that back in the 80s, most people believed that the future was going to be just a fucking awesome place uh, to live, uh, a great place to to, to work and to, to, to make a family, you know, get married, uh, live your life. You know, it was just going to be a, just a fucking great place to be, a great time to be. And to me, the Legion is kind of the embodiment of all of that. Not so much how great the future is, but just that optimism. That to me is what the Legion ultimately is all about. It doesn't matter how bad things ever get. The Legion... You, could, you might be able to bring them low, but you're never really going to be able to break them. You understand? There is, a, there is a sense in which, no matter how bad things ever get, they're never really affected by that. And so, where the rubber meets the road on that in Volume 4 is that, yeah, they do live in this kind of Blade Runner-esque, dystopic, just fucking shithole, on the one hand. But on the other hand, they themselves are still legionnaires with everything that implies you know the legion the legion of superheroes yes it's a team and, and teams are made up of people but fundamentally it's it's this idea there's a type of person who is a legionnaire you know you're not a legionnaire just because you're a member of the team you're a member of the team because you are a legionnaire and there's, a, there's an idealism that goes with that. There's an optimism that goes with that. Uh, hope. All of it. And what Jan is expressing here is that the Legion is bigger than this. They're better than this. They're going to save Roxas because that's what they do. They save lives. And if they willfully let Roxas die, they're betraying that. So there's an ideal to which they aspire and they're not going to break that ideal for anybody. Because if they're going to break that ideal, guys, this is the time to do it. Letting Roxas die, that's the time to do it. And the reason that just fucking plays like gangbusters for me is, number one, that's a great thing to put in a comic book. That's a great ideal to aspire to. But num number two, for me, it kind of, it gives 
a very plausible and very logical reason for the Legion to exist. Why is Cause special? Because when you think about it, he comes from a planet of, uh, of people who can do exactly the same stuff that he can do. Why is Imra special? She comes from a, a, a race of people that can do exactly the same thing that, that she does. Why is Jan special? Same thing. Everyone from Trom can, or at least could, do the same thing that he does. What sets all of them apart? Not just from human beings who obviously don't have those powers, but what sets them apart from their own people? What sets them apart from, what do you call the people, like Titanians, I guess? What sets Emra apart from other Titanians? What sets uh, uh, Kaz apart from other Brawlians? What sets Jan apart from other Traumites? It isn't their abilities, it's their souls. It's, it's their moral universe, it's their worldview. It's how they process moral situations. It's the ideals that they live by. That's what sets them apart. Because when you think about it, by themselves, they're really not all that special. Even Ayla, when you think about it, isn't really all that special. Uh, her, both of her brothers have the exact same electrical powers that she does. No, that is not a power that's native to Wynothians, but she's still not exactly unique in the universe. Three other people, or sorry, two other people, can do exactly what she does. So why is she on the team uh, when it looks like her brother already has it covered? Or for that matter, why, why is Garth on the team, historically, when Ayla has it covered? Well, there you go. That's why. They're both something more than the conventional Wynothian, and that is why they're both on the team. Now, we can, we, we can kind of debate amongst ourselves, do we really need two people on the team with electrical powers? That's not the point. The point is, they're both Legionnaires, and so that's why they both belong on the team. They're not Legionnaires because they're members of the Legion of Superheroes. They're members of the Legion of Superheroes because they are both Legionnaires. And that is not a distinction without a difference. If you say that somebody is a Legionnaire just because they're part of the team, to me, you're kind of putting the cart before the horse a little bit. So anyway, this is just a great fucking page. And of course, leave it to the gift to pick up on this very important thread. So this is why I associate, just to kind of bring it all back, this is why I associate the Legion with all that synthwave stuff, because the the ideals that they live up to is very much in line with the 80s kind of retro future, uh, futurist type stuff, and those ideals, aesthetics, and values that synthwave embodies. To me, they... They really do go well. I'm not saying they're inseparable. I'm just saying they, they mesh together very well, at least in my book. And this is my show, and I get to score it however the hell I want. Now, one of the things that I did accidentally sort of skip over here, this is actually page seven. It's Bryn. He's wandering around through the woods. He's clearly lost in his own despair and his own depression. And in a certain kind of sense, his own outrage. He says, I don't need... He's talking about the other legionnaires. He says... Uh, Joe's kept my secret this long. I'm not going to let them know now that their big stupid furball is really Bryn Londo, the great timber wolf of the Legion of Superheroes. I don't need their pity. Don't want to be another Legion tragedy. I, 
I just want Ayla to remember me the way I was. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it? That he thinks about the, the Legion in general, and then he thinks about Ayla specifically. But no one else specifically. Only Ayla. Curiouser and curiouser. So, anyway. And I guess he's sort of like a reverse werewolf or something, because it looks like this is a full moon on Wynoth, so that seems to be what reverted him back to his normal shape and away from Furball, which, again, is also kind of sort of interesting. So, anyway, that's really that. Sorry, I'm getting a sip off of my Coke here. Excuse me. And I'm breaking a little bit with what my tradition has been in these episodes up to this point, this latest batch of uh, Legion episodes. And all of the previous episodes uh, that I've done about the Legion, I was drinking orange vanilla Coke out of a can, whereas today I'm drinking regular Coke out of a bottle. So I guess I couldn't quite keep the continuity going, but... Hey, what can you do? So, all right. Now, before I move on, I uh, I want to get a couple of drags of uh, vapor here. So, just a second. And by the way, my defense for all of this is, guys, I've been going for it looks like over half an hour now. So, I think I've I, I think I've earned the right maybe to just take a quick little break. So, just a minute. <clears throat> All right, so uh, moving right along here, this is uh, page thirteen. We we catch up with we catch up with Joe, and the captioning doesn't even tell us where he's located exactly. At least not at first, uh, and for that matter, not even specifically that he's lost in time. I mean that comes out I think a little bit later, but it comes. But nevertheless, it's basically uh, Joe. He's wandering around, and he's noticing that you know what. A lot of things here just don't add up. He, sa- he he thinks to himself, face it, Joe, Roxas got you good this time. Vegetation's all wrong. Constellations are out of whack. The moons are out of place. No matter how you slice it, I don't think we're on Wynoth anymore, boofer. Hmm. Civilization. That almost looks like a bloody grife. A Kundish 306 transport. I've only seen fossils of this baby. Must be a mock-up. And then, at that moment, he gets uh, a uh, Kund uh, ends up getting uh, the drop on him. He's got some sort of super rifle or what have you pointed at him. And uh, he says, okay, buddy, I could wrap that barrel around your neck if I wanted to, but that's not going to help me figure out where I am. So, what the grife? Take me to your leader. And why would he be afraid of this? I mean, yeah, it's not exactly good, necessarily, to be captured by the Kunds, but it's like, at the same time, He's fucking Ultra Boy, dude. I mean, he can... I think he can break out of whatever prison they throw him in. So he has no reason to not go along quietly. So, anyway. 
Uh, getting into page 14, the dominators are watching news coverage of everything that's happening with uh, the hunt for Roxas, the reformed Legion, and all that stuff. And needless to say, they are losing their shit over this. So page 15, this is the big moment. This is, depending on how you look at it, this is the official return of the Legion of Superheroes where Cam presents Cause with the the new Legion of Superheroes uniform. Now, we don't really see it here on page 15. We do see it later on in this issue, but I'm not going to be talking about that stuff in this episode because, honestly, that really is the beginning of a new story, whereas the story that began in Legion number 1, where Cam recruits Cause to begin rebuilding and reforming the Legion. That concludes right here on page 15, where the Legion has reunited, they have reformed, and now they even have uniforms. That ends here. So the reason I'm going to go ahead and call it a day uh, on this story, or rather, with I'm going to call it a day on this issue, on uh, page 15 is precisely because of the fact that the story that we started in Legion number one wraps up right here. And what we get going forward is a continuation of stuff that began after Legion of Superheroes number one. So that's that. The reason for this really, though, is because next week, if there even is an episode next week, I'm really not sure what I'm talk what, what I want to talk about, but whatever it is, I think I pretty much tapped out on the Legion, at least for the time being. And I want to talk about some other stuff going forward. So, so that's pretty much that. But what I will say is that for a lot of Legion fans, the uniforms, the, the sort of gray or predominantly gray uniforms that the Legion wears or most of the Legionnaires wear, this is a little bit of a controversial element. They These types of fans seem to prefer that the Legion all have kind of unique uniforms and that giving everybody the same look kind of diminishes the individuality that the team members bring. I'm not here to tell anybody that they're right or that they're wrong. I'm just going to say that I kind of enjoy these uniforms as an artifact of five years later. I don't know if I would necessarily support the idea of the Legion having kind of uniform looks going forward. Certainly not this particular uniform. But I kind of think of this as sort of 80s slash 90s chic. And I just kind of enjoy it on that level. So if you hate these uniforms, I'm not here to tell you that you're right or that you're wrong. If you love these uniforms, I'm not here to tell you that, that you're right or that you're wrong. I'm just saying that I'm able to compartmentalize it at least well enough to say that this works for me. I, I just kind of enjoy, enjoy these outfits. This is, uh, I think it's good stuff overall. So there doesn't seem to be a, a, uh, a specific entry for Le for uh, Legion number 12 on the Tom Beerbaum live journal, or at least if there is, I wasn't able to find it. I was able to find some kind of uh, general notes. And I realize actually now that one of the general notes that I found it technically does relate to Legion number 12, but it relates to the part of Legion number 12 that I'm not going to talk about. Although I think I've got a lot to say about good old Kent Shakespeare, but that's maybe for another time, I think. The other thing, though, that I wanted to talk about uh, that I was able to find, this is more of a general sort of thing. 
On March the 28th, 2009, Tom Bierbaum posted an entry on his live journal entitled The Time Trapper. And he basically says, I think the original plan was to, indeed, kill off the Time Trapper in our Legion number four. But in the middle of that issue, the edict came down that we could no longer use Superman references in the Legion. With several storylines in the works that related to Legion history, we made the decision, questionable in retrospect, to break apart Legion history, take Superboy out, and then reassemble the pieces with Valor in his place. And that's a little bit of useful information that I honestly don't remember if I talked about in my the episode that I did about Legion of Superheroes number four. But it does bear emphasizing that the original ending, the original planned ending for Legion number four, I don't, I mean, I can't specifically say what it might have been. But I think we can infer it was going to be different than what we ultimately got. So uh, Beerbomb goes on to say, It all worked great, except we never addressed the fact that a key Superman story featured the old Legion and the Time Trapper. And logically, that story now never took place, or at least took place somehow with Valor and Glorith replacing Superboy and the Time Trapper. As was to be expected, there was no willingness on the part of the Superman creators to explain or alter Superman's storyline to accommodate our, our problems, nor should there have been. So we were instructed to change... I just lost my spot. Yeah, here we go. We were, uh, so we were instructed to change around our explanations with a Glorith slash Time Trapper scene in the back of Legion Number 12, or thereabouts, that... Uh, that muddled things to the point where even we didn't understand what was supposed to have happened. Apparently, it was at this point that, behind the scenes, and with no attempt to let Keith or us know, the decision was made above us to wipe everything out with a zero-hour type event and start over. And the reason I wanted to mention this is because, guys, I have no fucking idea what Beer Bomb is talking about here, because uh, zero-hour didn't happen until 1994, the uh, the uh, cover date for uh, Legion of Superheroes number 12 is October of 1990. I'll guess, I mean, I could be wrong, but I'll venture that the actual release date for Legion of Superheroes number 12 was probably uh, December of 1991. And so at that point, it would be safe to say that Zero Hour was years and years away. And my understanding, again, don't mistake me for an expert on Zero Hour, but my understanding is that, number one, Zero Hour is pretty much a brainchild of Dan Jurgens. Number two, one of the reasons that DC went ahead with Zero Hour is because the guy that uh, came up with the uh, Doomsday concept had an idea for a company-wide crossover. That's number two. So he had a lot of mojo at DC at the time, understandably so. And number three, he didn't have the idea for this until something like 1993 or something like that. So I don't specifically understand what, what it is that Beer Bomb's talking about here. My... Again, I'm, I mean, I'm piecing together a lot of different things from a lot of different sources and trying to kind of fit them together. And perhaps I'm wrong in doing so. But my understanding of what happened is that 
there wasn't an edict from higher up that said to the Legion, uh, the uh, creative teams behind Legion of Superheroes and Legionnaires circa 1993, 1994, and through there, that, hey, you guys have to reboot. My understanding is it was the creative teams that's themselves who wanted to reboot. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's just something that I've inferred over the years. And so they used the occasion of Zero Hour to do that. But there wasn't anything specific about the creative teams wanting to reboot that made Zero Hour happen. There was nothing about Zero Hour happening that made the creative teams want to reboot. Basically, the creative teams, they they saw Zero Hour as an opportunity to launch a reboot, and so that's what they did. And again, those decisions, I assume, would have been made sometime maybe at the end of 1992, more likely sometime in 1993. Again, total guess on my part. I could be wrong. And so when... Beerbomb is talking about a decision that was made seemingly back in the beginning of 19-fucking-90 for Zero Hour or some type of similar event as a uh, as some type of occasion to reboot the Legion. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. I'm not saying he's wrong. What I'm saying is he could be wrong or he could be right. I'm saying I don't know. That doesn't really line up with what I understand the sequence of events to have been, the kind of timeline that I've sort of cobbled together over the years. I'm just saying that I would love it if he would elaborate on that, and or if somebody would elaborate on that, but unfortunately, Beerbomb himself never has, at least in a place that I've seen, so I don't know. But uh, anyway, so he goes on to write, if there had been any interest in what we thought, um, in uh, what we thought, we'd have suggested that we just wait till the right time and have... Time Trapper resurrect himself, reassert his original manipulations in the timeline, and return the Legion continuity to exactly its original course. Maybe even Superman could have experienced some time quakes or something until the Time Trapper's return would restore the key events to to his segment of the timeline, and everything settled back to where it uh, once was. And this is one of those things that, honestly... Guys, look, I'm on the record long, loud, and often for being a huge 1980s-era John Byrne fan. I fucking dig John Byrne. I mean, when you start talking about, you know, John Byrne in the 70s, and certainly, definitely, absolutely going into the 80s, in my view, I mean, the guy could do virtually no wrong. No wrong. I, I Prior to... I'm just going to throw 1990 out there as just a general start date. Prior to 1990, meaning December the 31st, 1989, and going backwards, I have never once read a a comic book that John Byrne was deeply involved with and came away thinking, man, that was a real piece of shit. You know, uh, I just fucking dig John Byrne. 1970s John Byrne, awesome. Uh, 1980s John Byrne, if it's possible, somehow even awesomer than 1970s John Byrne. And just keep in mind, we've already set the bar pretty goddamn high there, okay? So all of this is a kind of a disclaimer. It's a way of me covering my ass when I say that one of the few things that I would kind somewhat, maybe a little tiny bit quibble with Byrne over with uh, his work on MOS and rebooting Superman and all that fun stuff is... 
removing Superboy from the from the equation specifically, how much that royally screwed the Legion over? Because it's one thing, I think if if Byrne had kept Superboy in continuity and then just had him grow and become the post-crisis Superman, even then, even then, you've still got some minor continuity problems going on there. For example, John Byrne's Superman could not travel through time under his own power. He wasn't able to do that. And yet, there it's really not very hard to find stories that deeply, inseparably even, involve the Legion where Superboy flies into the past or flies into the future or whatever under his own power. But the way I see it, you know, you can maybe, I don't you can kind of work around little bits of discontinuity like that because ultimately it doesn't really add up to all that much. You know, you can still preserve like 99.9% of the Legion's history if John Byrne positions Superboy in post-crisis Superman's childhood. That is just fucking not possible if Superboy is just removed from the equation, you know? Now, the way that Byrne tells it, I guys, I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm not taking anybody's side. I'm not opposing anybody. I'm just saying that the way Byrne tell, tells it, he announced pretty early on, like sometime in like 1985 or something like that, to the powers that were behind the Legion of Superheroes, he's like, guys, there's some shit that's going to be happening here. Number one, I'm coming on to Superman. Number two, I'm rebooting Superman at DC's behest. Number three, I'm removing Superboy from continuity. That's going to screw things up in a big bad way with the Legion, so if you want, we can sit down and work something out with each other right now so that we can figure out a way to tell things with Superman the way I want to tell them while not completely screwing things up for the Legion. And again, no, there's the ring app. Not taking anybody's side here. I'm not saying anyone's right or anyone's wrong or anything like that. I'm just saying that the way Byrne tells it, this is this is the way that things shook out with the the powers that were at or that were behind uh, the Legion uh, comics at the time. Nobody took that seriously. Nobody wanted to get involved. Nobody wanted to sit down with them and figure this thing out. Nobody wanted to uh, do any kind of work, any kind of prep, any kind of anything for this. Now, my sense, look, I've never, except for passing his table at a con and saying, you know, waving and saying, hey, how you doing? I've never met Byrne. I certainly don't know Byrne. But my sense of him is that he's a very direct, he's a very no-nonsense kind of guy. If he's at fault on, uh, on something, he's more than happy to admit it. He's got a reputation, what I'm saying, with me of telling the truth, being honest and forthright. And if he says that he tried to warn the lead, uh, the uh, uh, Legion editor about what his plans were and no one wanted to do anything about it, so he just went on his merry way and did things his own way, guys, I've really got no reason 
to doubt him. Again, I'm not saying he's the good guy and the the uh, Legion staff, they're all assholes or anything like that. It could just be that this was a huge misunderstanding. Maybe some wires got crossed. Maybe something got lost in transmission. Maybe somebody involved with the Legion misunderstood what Byrne was up to. There's any number of possibilities, all right? I'm not trying to turn this into good guy versus bad guy here. I'm just saying that I do have to wonder why it is that nobody involved with the Legion took this seriously. Because, guys, this is one of those decisions that I think will live in infamy. Again, I'm not criticizing Byrne. I'm not taking his side either, but I'm not shitting on him at the same time. You know, I, I, I want it to be clear and understood that I respect Byrne. He's got my admiration. Just, you know what, for the moment, fuck the 80s. Okay, fuck the 80s. Just the stuff he did in the 70s. Just that. He's got my respect. Just X-Men. He's got my respect. But when you start getting into the 80s and stuff, I mean, I think John Byrne is all but unfucking peachable in the 80s. He's untouchable. Guy's awesome. And so I don't, again, I don't want it to, to, to sound like I'm criticizing the, the, the Legion team or Byrne or anybody. But it just kind of makes me wonder what might have been if they sat down together and then they would figured something out. Because Byrne has also gone on the record saying that in retrospect, he did regret deleting Superboy from uh, the, the uh, canon. Not because of specifically how that screwed up the Legion, although I'm sure that kind of factors in there somewhere. But first and foremost, he wanted to tell uh, stories about a rookie Superman. DC promised to let him do it, then they backed down at the last minute, and so he never got to do rookie Superman the way he wanted to. And he said it would have been, you know, looking back at it, it would have been kind of nice to have Superboy fill the role of rookie Superman. And so that, I think, is that was his main, his main regret, that he did it because ultimately he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted to do. And it, it actually raises like really a lot of, a, a lot of questions, you know, what if he either hadn't been allowed to remove Superboy from the canon or just fucking whatever, but whatever happened, happened. Superboy stayed in canon. Would Byrne have even done a Superman title proper or might he have just stuck with Superboy? And just focused all of his attention on that, you know? And what might that have been like? I mean, can you imagine John Byrne on a Superboy? Holy fuck. That would have been awesome. So, anyway, I do kind of... I mean, actually, you know what? I was actually about to say something where I start taking sides on things a bit. And I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to go ahead and just keep my, my big mouth shut on that. So, anyway, all in all, this is a... Uh, this is just a really fun issue. It delivers the payoffs that had been promised, and it basically sets us up for uh, the story moving in new directions in um, issues to come. And so uh, what I'm going to do, guys, is when I... Uh, sooner or later... This is a promise, okay? Gold-plated fucking guarantee. I don't know when, but my word. I give you my word that I will come back to talk about more Legion five years later stuff and... When I do, uh, obviously it's going to be to talk about Legion of Superheroes Volume 4, number 13. But what I'm going to do when it finally gets to that point is I'm going to first finish off Legion of Superheroes number 12 
get that knocked out, the uh, last couple of pages of Le uh, Legion of Superheroes number 12. And then from there, I'm going to then move on, obviously, into the the uh, meat and potatoes, the bread and butter of what whatever it is that uh, Legion of Superheroes number 13 is supposed to be all about. So there you go. So that's that. Now, getting into feedback this week, I got another email from my old friend, Fanboy MS Prime. This is dated Tuesday, November the 18th, uh, 2014. Email is entitled Power of Shazam. So, gee, I wonder which episode he's reacting to. Prime writes, Hey, Magnus. The Power of Shazam sounds like it's an incredible hardcover. The thing on Evil Businessmen is that, yes, there are some that are evil and some that are so stupid one wonders how they got into a position of power in a company, such as many of the last decade's owners of Hostess. Yes, I know the candy and snack food market is hard to, uh, to get major shares in with all the choices, but seriously, if you can't make a profit off Hostess products, you can't make money off anything. Anyway, I believe Captain Marvel and Superman can both exist in the same universe. Which is my DC Presents ideas, I'm sure, I've, uh, I'm, I'm sure I've made clear. Though it gets much harder when you have Apollo, the High, Mr. Majestic, and Maximum Man from Wildstorm also added into the mix as two can be worked with. Okay, I'm not sure if I'm completely pro uh, parsing what you mean here, Prime, but anyway. Uh, Prime goes on to say, Especially given Captain Marvel and Superman are different in many ways. Those Wildstorm guys I mentioned are at a point of diminishing returns as they have less and less to add to the table in the face of the originals, which actually applies to a lot of the Wildstorm universe as it pastiches, to put it, uh, to put it nicely, and them going, we're not applying the Comics Code Authority at all, so we can do whatever vulgar thing we want in these, which usually are just for shock value. I mean, one of the superpowers of the guy who beat the Authority was nuclear poop. What? Fuck me. Prime. Really? For real? Like nuclear poop? Good lord. I mean, that's one hell of a Taco Tuesday. That's the most I can figure. Jeez. Anyway, Prime goes on to say, Again, something I discovered in the deep uh, DC Presents ideas is I wanted to clean up Wildstorm a bit to uh, throw it into the mix, but try to keep the flavor and character. Finding the original and not just discuss factor parts was not easy. The tone and feel of Wildstorm was not designed to be easily adapted to a children's cartoon. Still surprised an attempt wasn't made in the various DC shorts to do that, as frankly, a lot of them were just weird. You cannot complain on the DC Nation shorts being the safe bet as they were just making anything. Now, if you like the DC Nation shorts is another story entirely. I agree. Of course, my DC Presents idea is based off of, uh, an existing formula of Batman, the Brave and the Bold, and giving Superman a cartoon as a safe bet, uh, uh, given Man of Steel made a shitload of money. But then again, Batman, the Brave and the Bold went for the obscure offbeat and went into the depths of the DC universe, which, given you've read, I definitely went into that as much as I could. I mean, in my work on it, again, I've added the present-day version of the claw that was seen in the mid-90s primal... F wow! You added in the claw? Fuck me. Anyway, uh, present-day version of the claw that was seen in the mid-90s primal force series, among others. Superman might be there partly for name value and to help bring people in, but characters who never had appeared in animated form are there en masse for the show. And... 
And guys, just to be clear, the show that uh, Prime is talking about here, this is a, a show that he sort of developed. It's kind of a DC Presents type of show, similar to Batman, The Brave and the Bold, uh, but something similar to that for Superman. So that was the, the idea. And this is just kind of a fan idea, in case it's not clear. So let me get a drag off my vapor real quick. Anyway, so Prime goes on to say, And in all that I've done to write those ideas, I honestly never had the thought cross my mind to have Captain Marvel and Superman throw down. Some, fan some Phantom Zoners and Captain Marvel uh, thrown down has come to mind, but having them face, having them face is natural and, make and makes sense. And the Marvel family wiping the floor with them before dumping them back in the, uh, in the Phantom Zone is the ending of that fight. The closest to Superman and Captain Marvel uh, hitting would them together hitting Zod in the face. Yeah, for some reason, Zod has only been in one Superman cartoon, and Jack Sir was basically Zod with another name for some reason in Superman the Animated Series cartoon. Yeah, uh, pr uh, Prime, I'm going to put the uh, email on pause here and say, uh, my understanding is that uh, Jack Sir was... That's... He basically served... Uh, the same kind of role, kind of, sort of, in the in the the pre-crisis Superman canon that Zod served in the movies, particularly Superman Two. And General Zod was—I don't want to say his minion, but they were kind of compadres, I guess. They were associates, but I—I I don't know. It's just I can kind of see where. I can see where Donner was coming from and why he made some of the choices that he made. Now, we should say that if we look at the three Phantom Zone escapees from Superman 2 as we know them, they all have certain turf that they work with, right? Ursa, you could say that she hates the male of the species no matter what, right? She certainly has no love for for humans that's that's for sure but you get the idea based on some of the remarks made that uh, Jarrell made in Superman the movie that she's kind of misanthropic in in general and especially she hates like i say the male of the species and so that's kind of her turf the sort of misanthropic uh general zod groupie right then you've got general zod himself he's He's the idea guy. He's the he, he's the man with the vision. He's the guy who's going to lead the rebellion, lead the insurrection, and then put himself atop of the pecking order. So that's that. And then you've got Nod. He's he's basically the bruiser. He's the muscle. You know, whatever his backstory is, and obviously we don't get much of it, but whatever his backstory is, he's obviously completely 100% loyal to Zod. And so they all sort of have designated turf. And so Jack Soar is, he was in the comics, the original ones, what Zod became in the movies. So there's that to deal with. The other thing is I get the idea that when you take everything else away from Batman the Animated Series and Superman the Animated Series, the era of DC Comics that Paul Dini and Bruce Timm like the most is the Bronze Age. Now, 
with Superman, they kind of had their hands tied a little bit because the post-crisis Superman is just so markedly different from pre-crisis that you can't really get away with splitting the difference between the two. You're either doing burns, at least in the back in the 90s, if you're going to make a Superman cartoon, either you're doing burn Superman or you're doing pre-crisis Superman, if you're adapting from the comics anyway. You can't really split the difference between those two things. I would say they're almost incompatible with each other in certain ways, right? I mean, yeah, at the end of it, they all have Superman flying around, but those fine details, those tiny little details are very different from one another. And let's face it, DC at that time, their flagship character was still Superman. They were proud for Superman to be that flagship character. And the burned Superman was the Superman who was being published at the time. So I get the idea that somebody said, yeah, no, uh, Deanie and Tim, you want to do this show? That's fine. But you're going to adapt more or less the post-crisis Superman. But you look at some of the ideas that they had for Superman, the animated series, apart from Krypton and apart from Superman himself, the characterizations of certain characters um, even for that matter, the choice of characters, Rudy, not Rudy Jones. Um, well, yeah, well, fine. Rudy Jones using the Rudy Jones name, but kind of sort of somewhat using the Maxwell Jensen origin for the parasite, but calling him Rudy Jones, so on and so forth. Uh, you can kind of see a, a little bit of a bronze age preference there. When you start getting into Batman, the animated series, oh my God, huge Bronze Age influence going on there. Arguably an even bigger Bronze Age influence happening in Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. So my point is that I get the idea that, number one, Deanie and Tim are DC fanboys. They're DC born, DC bred, when they die, DC dead. It's not that they hate Marvel. But they are definitely DC fans first and foremost. And in relation to that, most specifically, Bronze Age DC. It's not that they hate the Silver Age or it's not that they hate post-crisis. It's not like that. They just have a special fondness for the Bronze Age because those are the DC comics that they grew up reading. And so that I to kind of finally tie this all back with your point, you asked why or you kind of inferred that you didn't completely understand why Zod never showed up in Superman the Animated Series. Prime, I think this is why. I think that the, the evil Kryptonian that um, Deanie and Tim were most familiar with probably would have been Jack Soar, right? And yeah, his female companion, her name is Mala, but... I can kind of rationalize, and she was even voiced by Sarah Douglas, as I recall, but I can kind of rationalize, well, they created Mala rather than use Ursa, because Ursa, she may have been owned by Warner Brothers, and there could be some legal issues going on with that. Ursa is not, a, or at least at that time, was not a comic book character, had never been brought into the comics. Again, possibly because of legal issues. So when they, when it came time to create a female companion for Jack Soar in Superman the Animated Series. To my knowledge, Mala is not a comic book character, and so they just said, okay, well, we're going to make a kind of, sort of, 
Ursa takeoff, there are some, some very important differences we need to emphasize, but some similarities to Ursa. So we're just going to call her Mala, make her look nothing at all like Ursa, and hope that covers it. So that, I think, was what was going on there, but I could be wrong. So moving right along, Prime writes, as for Captain Marvel's origin, well, I have kind of written my own, haven't I? Though less origin and more letting Bill Billy's Golden Age stories and such stand to have happened and used the Bronze Age attempt to put Billy, his friends, and some of his enemies in the modern day via having been in suspendium for decades. A story idea pretty much d dropped instantly, despite the fact it had worked, even by that point, really well for Captain America. Again, I never had any problem with Superman and Captain Marvel in the same universe. It's It, it just is the other guys with their power set. Uh, DC has taken by eating up their universe like our galaxy eats smaller ones. Pretty noticeable that Apollo is the only Wildstorm character with their power set to be used in any real amount in the DC new. Majestic was... I have no idea what the hell that was all about for him in Team 7. Maximum Man and the concept of tranquility was old, retired superheroes, and that scares DC so much as they want everyone young, hip, and trendy. And whoever is scared of marriage of superheroes and wants them to all have relationships like Batman can kiss my ass. And Prime, <laughs> I am right there with you. Although things do seem to be getting slightly better from what I hear about goings on in uh, DC these days. So I don't know. Uh, Prime goes on to say, Steve Englehart's follow-up in the 2000s to his classic Detective Comics run has Bruce realized under Scarecrow's fear toxins that in many ways he is fighting his war like a child would. And he tries to hook up with his love interest of that run, which is editor or Magnus's note, Silver St. Cloud. Back to Prime's email. It admittedly doesn't go well, but he tried. Anyway, back to the other guys with Superman's power set thing. The high and the changers being no-shows is just weird, as they're bringing up the question of how far is too far to use your superpower talents is a question worth telling and exploring. And Prime, I'm not promising that I'm going to talk about Squadron Supreme or anything like that on this show. But that does seem to be a pretty big element of Squadron Supreme, the 12-part Marvel Maxi series or limited series or whatever the fuck. So I'm, I'm not, again, not promising I'm going to talk about it on this show, but I'm not promising that I won't either. And it does kind of explore sort of similar ideas and themes and, and philosophies as all of that. So anyway, that that's pretty much that. So uh, whatever you want to make of that. I haven't, like I say, I haven't really made a... Uh, a, a final decision there. So uh, getting back into uh, Prime's email, though, uh, he writes, anyway, I'd never rain on the parade of those that like the live action comic shows, though I'd have to admit I've seen a lot of friends get burned out on Smallville. Again, I've made it clear that I never really cared in the slightest for Clark's teen years, unless the Legion are involved, but I won't be some snotty bastard thinking that not thinking the way I do makes your opinion on the show not valid. I've never been that way with the fandoms themselves. Admittedly, I can have a much sharper opinion on fan fiction stories or the comic book fan fiction uh, universes and their and their titles, but trust me, I can be, or, 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 but, or rather, but trust me, there can be some very sharp opinions uh, in that place, and I won't be spin uh, some spin doctoring tool to someone regardless. There's a long story behind that last comment. As for Crisis on Infinite Earths, I think that it'd need to be a mini-series of movie-length episodes to cover it all. <laughs> uh, 
Well, Prime, uh, I'm not really sure when this is, uh, uh, when this episode is coming out. I don't have a specific release date. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, sorry, I got distracted by something, Prime. I, I don't really have a specific release date for this episode. I'm not really sure when it's coming out. Um, but I'm guessing that by the time this episode comes out, the Arrowverse Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, crossover will have already wrapped up. So there you go. But uh, anyway, I just thought that was kind of a funny remark. So back to Prime's email. He says, still surprised Marvel hasn't made a Squadron Supreme miniseries on HBO or such using the miniseries, uh, using the miniseries by that name, meaning Squadron Supreme. Heroes trying to solve all the world's problems and finding out that isn't the best idea. Also, part of the reason Marvel isn't doing safe bets is because they don't have them. They don't have the X-Men or Spider-Man to use for themselves. They have to build from the ground up. Uh, they have to appeal. They have to build from the ground up appeal for various properties they still have, and it has, as you've said, worked extremely well for them. And now Iron Man, Star Lord, Rocket Raccoon, and more have hit the big screen, while DC is running around like a chicken with its head cut off and hasn't gotten Wonder Woman or any of the other classic DC characters anywhere close to the silver screen. And I'm gonna put Prime's email back on pause here to say, guys, again, this email was sent to me back in 2014. I realize that things have changed substantially since then. So don't gripe at me or Prime because of some things here that are kind of out of date. So anyway, Prime goes on to say, I'll need to watch more of Beware the Batman to get a feel on that series, but it did have the outsiders by the end of it. Well, on the Flash TV show, well, stuff we haven't seen before, like they're adding in and a lot of Firestorm stuff, and he's never been in live action either, ever. And they are well, well aware of the old Flash TV show as they got the Flash from, from that playing Barry's dad. The actor also played Professor Zoom in an episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold. Well, I think this email's gone on long enough. Can't wait to see what you talk about next and listen to your commentary on my emails. Till all are one. Signed, Fanboy Miss Prime. Uh, Prime, thanks a lot for taking the time to write in. I apologize for taking at this point over five years to finally get around to reading it on mic where everyone can hear it. Uh, but, you know, keep the feedback coming. I always love hearing from you. I love your ideas. I love your perspective. I love the, uh, the uh, things that you and I agree about and the things that we disagree about and where our fandoms don't necessarily align with each other at, at certain points. So anyway, and that I think is pretty much it for everything at this point. So the... Like I say, I'm not sure if there even will be an episode next week. If there is, I can virtually guarantee that considering all the Legion stuff that I've talked about lately, next week's episode, if there is one, probably won't be about Legion of uh, Superheroes number 13, if I were a betting man. I would say that whatever I talk about next, it's going to be something not the Legion, but you never know. So either way, I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So bye, everybody. I'll see you either next week or next time or just fucking whenever. Talk to you soon. So I think that's just about the end of that. 
Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens and dozens of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.
Hey everybody, Magnus here. In 1992, seven men disrupted the comic book industry. And it was awesome. It's hard to find a comic book publisher that launched with more anticipation, excitement, and hype than Image Comics did. Now me, I love Image Comics. So much, in fact, that beginning in March of 2020, I'm embarking upon a brand new epic mega-series. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. I'm taking a fond look back at a handful of early image titles. What was good? What was bad? What were some missed opportunities? Well, things couldn't have been too horrible because those comics sold millions and millions of copies. So. Join in on the fun with me and take a fond look back at the comics of yesteryear. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. A Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega series beginning in March of 2020. Only at 2TrueFreaks.com.